Welcome to the Recess Nurse Podcast, elevating emergency nursing one episode at a time. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Recess Nurse Podcast. Yunsi Dursa here. So I'm going to apologize in advance. I have a really bad cold and cough and sorry, my voice is very raspy. uh, So bear with me. I would really like to get your feedback on episodes that have already aired. Um, Please comment at recessnurse.com. I really want to hear what you like, what you dislike, what you want to hear more of. Um, Your feedback will be very invaluable. Okay, so on to the show. Use your critical thinking skills. How many times have we heard this? We have heard this. It has been drilled in our heads uh, since nursing school. But how many of us actually use our critical thinking skills and then make decisions, critical decisions for our patients? Um, or are you just deferring your these decisions to the providers? So I want you to really think about this. Uh, really think about your practice and think about what decisions you make as a nurse provider and what decisions you defer to the physicians. Um, uh, and should some of those decisions be made by you? Many of us triage and, you know, when we're triaging, we definitely are making a lot of decisions. Uh, We're deciding, is this patient really sick? Is this patient not really sick? What's the chief complaint? We pretty much at triage can make a pretty good guess as to what's going on with the patient with an ESI level. So, what happens when a patient finishes their triage and then are now, um, you know, in the main part of your emergency department or whatever, whatever part of the emergency department? But then why is it that from there, all the decisions are, you know, left up to the providers, including stuff that we should be able to make decisions on, such as toileting, NPO status, um, I'm going to provide you with a list, but um, I find this frustrating because we as nurses, we know what's going on and we're trained for this. So why not work at your full scope of practice? Um, It makes me sad because we're the ones at the bedside. We know the answers to these questions. So why is it that I am seeing so much of um, this decision making being pushed to the providers? Um, You know, part of why I love emergency nursing so much is because we have autonomy. And why would we want to give that away? Why would we want to give that up? Aside from the emergency department, the only other unit that really have these, you know, kind of privileges are the critical care units like the ICUs. And 
we deal with ICU patients all the time. So why why would you not want to practice with that same autonomy? I have the capability of making a decision as to whether my ETOH patient needs to eat. I mean, frankly, all ETOH patients need to eat. So, you know, the decision ends up being, okay, I decided to do a finger stick. Um, I can do that without a doctor's order. Um, You decide, okay, the sugar is kind of, it's normal, but it's on the low end. And you know ETOH patients, their glucose levels always drop. Just give them food. You know, they're, they're not eating. They're just drinking their calories. Um, so just give them, you know, multiple sandwiches and awesome juices and just to keep their sugar up. Um, you know, that's a decision you can make as a nurse. You don't need to ask the doctor, oh, can my ETOH patient eat? I can also decide if a patient can walk to the bathroom or not because I have been staring at this patient and looking at their motor strength, looking at their changes. Um, you know, obviously, if someone has a fracture in their femur or a pelvic fracture, they are not going to be walking to the bathroom and they will not be able to use a wheelchair. This is a bedpan patient um, for toileting needs. I can also decide as to whether a patient is ready for a PL trial or not. I don't need to wait for the doctor. So if someone comes in for just a simple non-specified abdominal pain or you know GERD or just a small case of gastritis, nothing serious, we gave them, we threw them the GI cocktail. They're not complaining of nausea anymore. They're not vomiting. They feel good. They're telling you, hey, I'm hungry. That's a good sign. So that's, you know, that's your assessment skill saying, okay, this patient got the GI cocktail. They're feeling better. And, you know, they look like they're more energetic. They're Why not start with a peel trial? If you're concerned, then just start with water. And then if that seems to go well, then just give them food. I mean, the worst that can happen is that this patient will start vomiting. But on the most part, they'll probably feel better and they probably need the food and the fluids and you got your disposition. So another example that I have is let's say your patient's blood pressure is 60 over 40. Um, and the norepi, a norepinephrine drip is ordered and it's always ordered at the lowest setting because that's how the orders are, you know, that that's just how they're put into the system. So it's a nursing function to titrate this drip to a goal map, uh, or a goal SBP or diastolic BP. So the worst thing you can do is to just set it at the lowest setting and you take your mind off the patient because you're like, you know what? I, I started this norepi drip. I put it in in the, in the setting that is ordered, which is always the lowest setting. And, and not repeating the blood pressures often enough, um, which frankly, it's a minimum of 15. But if that blood pressure is that low, you're probably cycling it every five minutes. Um, you know, you have to make these decisions. And this is so frustrating for me because you're effectively killing your patient um, in a sense. So 
the Norepi drip, it's great that there's an order for it and it's great that you started your Norepi drip, but that Norepi drip is doing shit for your patient because it's at the lowest setting and you really need to probably bump it up to 10, 15, 20, maybe even 30. Who knows? But you're not going to know until you titrate that drip. So as you titrate the drip, then hopefully you can meet your goal map or your goal SBP. But, you know, let's say let's say you've maxed out on your norepi drip and this blood pressure is still crappy. So if that's the case, then you know you're going to need a second presser. You need another drip to maintain this blood pressure. The only other option that you may have is maybe this patient's already intubated and you're using propofol um, as a post-sedation drip. Maybe you can titrate down your propofol and then you might have a little more wiggle room with your norepi drip. But if it's looking like you're going to need a second presser, you need to contact your doctor or the provider or whoever's taking care of the patient and let them know the situation. And it's very simple. You just call the doctor and you say, hey, um, you know, the patient's BP started at 60 over 40. Uh, I started the norepi drip. I've titrated it. I am maxed out on my norepi drip. And we're looking at, you know, I, I need a second vasopressor. You can, you know, most likely it's going to be vasopressin. Um, so you can suggest it. And or if there's some other problem, maybe... Uh, the propofol is so high because this patient is very awake. Maybe you might have to change out your um, your post sedation drip. I mean, there's I mean, there's just like a you know these other options, and you can make the decision uh, clinically, and or at least make a suggestion and communicate that with your doctor or your provider. Um, the worst thing you can do is okay, you've maxed out on your presser drip and then you say, well, um, I'm just going to wait the two hours and have all these uh, blood pressure, you know, like record your blood pressure, the vital signs for the next two hours and then say, well, you know, the doctor will figure it out and then just wait for that vasopressin order or wait for another vasopressor drip. So this is... um, not the way to go. This is something that is a nursing function and that you should be able to do this for your patient. So watching a low blood pressure because you're not actively titrating a drip is a problem. Um, This is part of the nursing function and this should not be given away. Don't give this up. I'm tired of um, watching this stuff, um, this autonomy being given away. Uh, We already gave away our vent skills to the respiratory therapist that used to be a nursing function. um, And it became too much for whatever reason. And now there are respiratory therapists. I love them. um, But that's also a nursing skill. So I still think that even though we have respiratory therapists, I think every nurse in the ER should know how to use vents. Um, it's extremely useful. 
So I definitely encourage you to make decisions in your own emergency nursing practice. Um, I know we need orders for everything. I know this. Uh, but for example, if you have a guy who comes in, he's got urinary retention for two days. Uh, maybe it's an enlarged prostate. Are you really going to deny your patient an indwelling urinary catheter? Because, you know, maybe... maybe it's one of those days it's it's really, really, really busy and the doctor just can't place that order right away. Um, so why not go in and just put in an indwelling urinary catheter, relieve this patient's pain and suffering, and you're also preventing further complications. So I have yet to meet a provider who refused to put in um, an order after I have placed an indwelling urinary catheter. Um, and I have yet to meet a patient who got mad at me for relieving all of that pressure. So um, this is one of those situations where I don't think it is appropriate to wait four hours for a doctor to place in an order just so you can say, you know what, I did it because um, I now have an order for it. You can definitely put in the catheter and then obtain the order afterwards. And obviously, um, with everything that I'm saying, you're doing this and you're communicating with your providers. So you say, hey, um, this patient came in with urinary retention for two days. He looked really crappy. I put in an indwelling catheter. There's, you know, the good flow um, and, you know, there's pressure uh, has been relieved immediately. And then obviously we are checking how much output there is. So, um, you know, uh, you can just say initial output was 500 mLs or initial output was a little high. It was 1,000 mLs. Uh, so that's, you know, that's now you're, you know, a little bit more concern, 1,000, 1,200 mLs. And that's something you can talk about to the doctor and then they may contact you. All right. So doctors who are listening to this podcast, um, I encourage you to give the power back to the nurses. If a nurse comes up to you uh, and is saying, uh, is asking, hey, uh, hey doc, uh, do you think that this patient can eat? You can always say, well, what do you think? What do you think the patient can do? Do you think that the patient can eat? Do you think the patient can walk? You know, what? ask the nurse what they think. Most of the time, the nurses know the answer. Um, and for whatever reason, we have started this culture where we cannot make decisions as nurses because for whatever reason, the hierarchy that administration wants, we can't make decisions. However, we make decisions all the time. So I encourage you, doctors, um, to give this power back to the nurses. And, and you can say, well, what do you think? But then whatever we think, you should support us with the decision, unless we're blatantly wrong. Um, I once worked with a doctor. His name is Richard Wong. And he was famous for this. And you know what? He was right because he made us think. He made us learn. And you end up making really good clinical decisions. Um, and he'll ask you, well, why do you think, you know, not only he went further. So it's not just like, OK, well, what do you think the patient needs? Then the question becomes, well, why do you think the patient needs this? Do you think the patient needs labs? Do you think the patient needs um, medications? 
Um, are there any allergies? What are the comorbidities? And you really start to learn how to truly assess your patients. And on the most part, a lot of it is fine. Uh, a lot of us ER nurses, we are able to make these decisions. The best situation in terms of the uh, nurse provider relationship is that there's no there's no question that the orders need to be placed but sometimes what happens is you know you have a good relationship with the there's a good nurse provider relationship but what happens is it's really busy or there's like another critical patient that comes in and verbally, you agree, okay, this is the plan of care. We're going to do this, 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 and this. And then you carry it out. Um, and then, you know, the orders may come in like five minutes later. The orders might come in 10 minutes later. But it's all agreed upon. And then everyone will follow through. So the doctors will put in the orders and the nurses will conduct, you know, whatever they need to conduct uh, in order to, to address the patient's needs. As long as the orders are in, I don't really care. Um, and to the providers who are listening to this, we definitely need the orders because we um, we have to answer to all the actions, all the implementation, all the interventions that we do. There has to be an order for all of this. So, uh, so we definitely need the orders. And especially if we're giving narcotic medications or drips, we definitely need the orders for all of that stuff. Um, and, and, and we're grateful, you know, we like this kind of working relationship, but it goes both ways. Now, why am I talking about all this? Because it seems like low lying fruit and it's just like, you know, this is, this is little shit. Who cares? Well, you know what? A lot of this little shit will add up to bigger shit. So if you can't make decisions on the small stuff, um, and small stuff is simple. It's like NPO status, you know, uh, like toileting status. Uh, do the patient need pain medication? Um, you know, that kind of stuff. Then the problem is, how do you think you're going to make decisions on bigger stuff? So at some point, you're going to be taking care of patients who are really sick. So we're talking about post-cardiac arrest, post-intubation sedation, uh, maybe TBI, someone with a TBI and needs ICP monitoring. Uh, maybe you have a patient who has DKA with a really bad anion gap and you're trying to close this anion gap. Or you notice that someone's pH is really falling low. And at this point, you are anticipating intubation. You may be the nurse that ran a point of care and noticed that that pH is really low. Are you going to sit on that value or are you going to immediately alert the doctor? And then also you may have to alert RT, hey, like we're looking at an intubation. So these things really matter and they make a huge difference to um, the patient. And frankly, it's in our scope of care. Yes, there are certain things where there may be overlap between you as a nurse or the doctor or even a respiratory therapist, but um, or maybe other consults. However, at the end of the day, you're still coordinating all the care for your patient. So, you know, you, you should be on top of it. And a lot of the times what I see is that the doctor's orders are already there and you just have to do it. So, for example, I'm going to go back to it 
and it has to do with titrating drips. Um, in the order, there's always a goal and you should titrate to that goal. And if you're unable to meet the goal, then that means this patient is really sick um, and will need additional medications or maybe there's something else going on. At the end of the day, you really should just go ahead and, and do what needs to be done for the patient. I That waiting game, like, like let's just wait and see, it's not going to work. Um, not in these type of patients. So if I think a good practice is, you know, if you can deal with the little shit, then you can definitely deal with the bigger shit. So examples of what you can do um, where we can make a lot of these decisions on our own are the following. So NPO status, um, on the most part, most of these patients you can feed. Um, a lot of the patients you can feed. So don't be lazy about it. Um, you know, just feed your patients. Uh, for NPO status, um, pretty much you know which which labs values that you may have to wait on or maybe um, which radiology studies that you need to wait on. Um, and then and then afterwards, you know, just feed your patients. Uh, providers who are listening to this, if for whatever reason the um, you need to automatically emergently put a patient on MPO status, that's something you really need to communicate also to your nurses, because sometimes we have 10, 12, 14, 18 patients. There's no way that we're going to be able to see that little, you know, that little uh, nursing communication or some order. You should walk up to us and say, "Hey, uh, this patient emergently has to go to the OR. I just saw the CT scans." And also, you know, we're going to place this patient on NPO status. Um, and it's great to get that communication because then we also have to tell our PCA or tech um, or maybe a volunteer who might be offering food. Um, so the best thing is, you know, not only do you tell your team, um, everyone who is taking care of the patient, but also, you know, most importantly, we need to tell the patient that this patient is on NPO status. Okay, so there's also toileting. Um, you know, can the patient ambulate to the bathroom or does the patient need an indwelling urinary catheter? Uh, pain medication. We're constantly reassessing for pain. So, you know, you know how much pain medication, whether this patient needs more or not. Um, labs. Um, for example, you're trying to close an anion gap or you need to draw on uh, the repeat troponin. Maybe there's no order, but maybe there's a protocol where you can just place the order in yourself and draw the labs and send it. Um, respiratory interventions. So you, like I mentioned earlier, I think all nurses should know how to use vents um, and you should be able to titrate your BiPAP settings as needed. Um, and, you know, if you're intubating somebody you should probably know how to use those vents as well. And then uh, changes in vital signs. Um, maybe you need to maybe you need to do more frequent vital sign. Um, you know, that's something that you have to make a decision. That's not something that you wait um, until someone asks you, hey, can we get a repeat blood pressure? Um, if someone's blood pressure is low, you should recheck it. Maybe it's a fluke. Maybe it's not a fluke. 
But the whole point is you're supposed to be monitoring your patients. Um, you can definitely initiate an EKG. Uh, just because the patient is not in triage and is not complaining of chest pain initially, but then all of a sudden maybe they're, they have a new onset of chest pain or, you know, for whatever reason, they're super tacky or whatever. Um, you can definitely initiate an EKG. You don't have to wait for a doctor's order for that. Uh, they can always place that order afterwards. It's really not an issue. Um, eyes and O's. So if you have like a septic patient and you're pumping in, I don't know, four liters of fluids, uh, I'm going to have a discussion on this, but you have like four liters of fluids, you should be monitoring their eyes and nose. If they're not peeing um, and they their creatinine level is normal, then there's something very, very wrong. So this is something else that it's like an eye, eyes and nose um, I think we should be doing them in the ER and and you should be monitoring that. And if there's something abnormal about it, once again, you're going to have to go and communicate that with the doctor. Finally, you, you don't have to ask a doctor if a patient needs more than one IV line. Um, that's We're the ones that are administering all the drugs. We know which medications... Um, you know, you can run together in the same line and which medications you can't run together in the same line. And then there are some patients who are so sick that you need an additional line just in case if something else crappy happens and you need to run something else. So this is a nursing decision. Um, I, I, it, it, I cringe when a nurse colleague will ask the doctor like, oh, uh, do we need another IV line? You should be able to make that decision yourself because they're not running any of the medications. We're the ones that are doing that. So we know how many IV lines a patient will need. So unfortunately, um, I feel that as ER nurses, we've somehow managed um, in the last several years that we've relinquished a lot of our decision-making capabilities. And I am making a stance and I, I... Let's take it back. Uh, We should take credit that we are emergency nurses. Uh, We see a lot and we definitely do a lot for our patients. And there's no reason why we should be deferring certain decisions to the providers. This This is part of our autonomy as ER nurses. Um, There are definitely times, I will say, that you do have to communicate with your providers. So it's not about just like, oh, I'm going to go and I'm just going to do whatever I want with the patient. No, you know what needs to be done for the patient, but maybe you can't get that order right this minute because there's some extenuating circumstance. And you're not going to you're not going to have the patient not get the care over some stupid technical detail like that. Um, You're going to communicate with your providers and agree on the plan, whether it's verbally or whether you have you, they actually have the time to put in that order at that very minute. Um, But, you know, let's, let's work together to get these patients, these really sick patients better. So if it's ridiculous to ask the provider if we're, you know, in the middle of, um, you know, a critical situation 
And you're going to say, well, uh, I'm not going to hang these fluids until you put in an order. So that means they have to leave the bedside, put in the order while they're still trying to, you know, figure out and get other things going um, at the same time. Hang the fluids, they'll put in the order and you'll pick it up in a matter of a minute or two minutes. This is really going to help with your ER workflow. It's going to help with the patient getting the care quickly and in an appropriate time. Um, and you're going to develop a much better relationship with your providers. That's it for today. And we can talk about this further, um, but this is just something I want to discuss because nursing decisions in the emergency department are very, very, very important. And we should never relinquish uh, this autonomy that we have. And that's part of the beauty of working in the emergency department. So let's keep that. You've just listened to an episode of the Recess Nurse Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Check out the website, recessnurse.com, for show notes, a place to leave your comments, and start a conversation. You can also follow me on iTunes, Twitter, and Facebook. 